Jeff Bezos makes $152,207 a minute. He makes more in a minute than they make in two or three years. And yet he spent millions to prevent them from having a voice on the job. This isn't the end, this is the beginning. This is the tidal wave of workers wanting a voice on the job, decency and respect. Sing it, brother. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me, maybe no one else, but I do, from (laughs) bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of The Bradcast. Um, We've got some, well, we had good news for Alabamians in our previous Bradcast, in which, in case you missed it, It was about uh, Alabama's sleazy, dishonest Republican Secretary of State, John Merrill, who has lied about the state's voting systems that he is supposed to oversee. He has lied about the state's election code on national TV. He has blocked election experts and journalists and even his own constituents on Twitter when they dared to very politely disagree with him on just about anything. He has long attacked the LGBTQ community under the guise of religiosity. He has attacked yours truly via some bizarre emails. And most importantly, he went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court to block voters who feared COVID infection inside polling places last year in order to prevent them from using safe curbside voting instead, forcing them to choose between losing their vote and risking their lives. Other than that, he's a terrific guy. (laughs) So that dude, as I told you on uh, our previous show, Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill, uh, as I detailed in a long uh, and uh, still sorry about it, necessarily sleazy report on the uh, previous broadcast, he was outed 
This week, as the lying, sleazy hypocrite that he is, after being forced to admit that he had lied about a years-long extramarital affair that he had just hours earlier, denied. Once the woman in question, of course, uh, gave indisputable, explicit phone and text message uh, evidence to the media about this affair. She had receipts. And thus, of course, crushing the uh, jerk's early candidacy for the GOP nomination to fill the U.S. Senate seat being vacated next year by Democrat-turned-Republican Senator Richard Shelby in Alabama. So if you miss that good news but sleazy news story for Alabamians uh, previously, you can download it for free from bradblog.com. Though note, uh, it does include a PG-13 yeah. Maybe R-rated uh, version of some of the phone conversation between Merrill and his paramour. Believe me, it could have been much worse. <laughs> yes, that's true. I could have shared his text messages. Actually, I couldn't have. The FCC wouldn't have allowed it. That said, Correct. you can now add Secretary of State Merrill, uh, who, by the way, has not resigned and who still serves as chair of the Republican Secretaries of State's uh, executive committee. You can add him to the long and apparently still growing list of high-profile Republican hypocrites in Alabama that include the state's previously uh, previous Republican governor, Robert Bentley. He was also caught having an affair that he lied about and used public funds to carry out and had to eventually be impeached over. And, of course, there's the failed U.S. Senate candidate from Alabama, and it's a two-time impeached Supreme Court, Alabama State Supreme Court Justice Roy Moore, who was accused by a host of women of being a sexual predator, including several women who were underage at the time. And, of course, Alabama's federal district judge, Mark Fuller, who uh, brutally uh, sentenced Alabama's last Democratic governor, Don Siegelman, for a crime that more than 100 Democratic and Republican former state attorneys general said was never actually a crime before Siegelman's Republican opponents figured out how to charge him with it. And the judge in that case, Mark Fuller, as we also documented in um, quite ugly uh, uh, audio tape some years ago at, uh, at bradblog.com, he was eventually arrested after being found to have beaten his wife in an Atlanta hotel room. Great people all, those Republicans in Alabama. Quite the cavalcade of sleaze. That, however, was the good news about Alabama. Here's the bad news uh, for Alabamians today, specifically for the uh, Alabama working class. Amazon warehouse workers in Bessemer, Alabama, near Birmingham, appear to have voted overwhelmingly against forming a union following a months-long campaign in which labor had hoped to make inroads into the sprawling company there. As of Friday morning, the tally finds 1,798 employees voted against unionizing, while just 738 votes were counted in favor. If it had been approved, the union would have been the first in the U.S. for Amazon, which is the country's second largest employer. Even as the vote was being completed, however, the uh, Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, the RWDSU, that's the union seeking to represent the 5,800 workers in Bessemer, 
They said they would challenge the vote by filing unfair labor practice charges with the National Labor Relations Board. They allege that Amazon broke the law several times with some of its anti-union activity in the run-up to the election. According to Stuart Applebaum, the president of the union, he well, he railed against the company's tactics, the union-busting tactics, in a statement released today highlighting what he describes as illegal tactics carried out by the company. He said Amazon has left no stone unturned in its effort to gaslight its own employees. We won't let Amazon's lies, deceptions, and illegal activities go unchallenged, which is why we are formally filing charges against all of the egregious and blatantly illegal actions taken by Amazon during the union vote. He says Amazon knew full well that unless they did everything they possibly could, even illegal activity, their workers would have continued supporting the union. That's why they required all of their employees to attend lecture after lecture filled with mistruths and lies where workers had to listen to the company demand they oppose the union. That's why they flooded the Internet, the airwaves, the social media with ads spreading misinformation. That's why they brought in dozens of outsiders and union busters to walk the floor of the warehouse. That's why they bombarded people with signs throughout the facility and with text messages and calls at home. And that's why they have been lying about union dues. Amazon's conduct has been despicable, said uh, Applebaum. Worst yet, he noted, even though the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, definitively denied Amazon's request for a drop box on the warehouse property for voting, Amazon felt they were above the law and they worked with the U.S. Postal Service to install one anyway, even though the NLRB said they could not. They did this because it provided a clear ability to intimidate workers, he charges. He goes on to demand a comprehensive investigation over uh, Amazon's behavior in corrupting this election. He went on to charge, quote, working people deserve better than the way Amazon has conducted itself during the campaign. He says Amazon's behavior during the election cannot be ignored and our union will seek remedy to each and every improper action Amazon took. We will not rest, he vowed, until workers' voices are heard fairly under the law. When they are, we believe they will be victorious in this historic and critical fight to unionize the first Amazon warehouse in the U.S. Amazon, for its part, of course, disputes all of those charges. In a blog post after the vote concluded, they wrote, quote, It's easy to predict the union will say that Amazon won this election because we intimidated employees, but that is not true. They say our employees heard far more anti-Amazon messages from the union, policymakers and media outlets than they heard from us. Now, after the seven-week window to uh, vote ended on March 29, the NLRB spent almost two weeks checking the eligibility of ballots and counting them in a process that was observed by both sides. Out of more than 5,800 eligible workers, just over 3,000 votes were cast. Surprisingly small number, frankly. Uh, More than 500 of them were set aside as contested, mostly by Amazon, according to the union. The uh, ballots can be contested by either side based on factors like, you know, 
illegible signatures, there we go, or questions about whether the employee's job title actually entitles them to vote, those 505 ballots would only be counted if the final margin is small enough. But in this case, even if all 505 actually went to the union side, that would not be enough to overcome the number of tallied votes against union uh, unionization here. According to NBC News today, labor experts said the results are not a surprise, given that Amazon has invested so much money in counter-organizing. And uh, Rebecca Jivan, an associate professor at Rutgers University in New Jersey, said it's hard for workers to win in a situation like this. The most likely outcome is that the employers successfully bust the union by instilling fear and uncertainty into the workers and Even those workers that were initially in favor of organizing into a union get afraid and they change their mind. The company did really all sorts of things, posting signs all over the place, even in bathroom stalls, anti-union signs. Yeah, inside the bathroom stall where you could not help but see it. And they use the website, uh, uh, yeah, the hashtag, uh, hashtag do it without dues, highlighting how workers might have to pay $500 in annual dues to the union. Oh, the horror. $500 a year for better working conditions and better wages and better benefits for everybody from the world's most profitable company. Of course, Amazon has a long history of thwarting unionization. Uh, Back in 1999, they actually closed down a facility that looks like it was going to uh, uh, be unionized. Nonetheless, despite all of this, Rebecca Javon says that um, this drive, uh, you know, might in the long run end up uh, working out to help, uh, whether it's in Bessemer or elsewhere, help workers to unionize. She said workers around the country who have been watching what's happening will be potentially inspired by what can happen if you do take action. Analysts said efforts to unionize at other Amazon warehouses in the U.S. are likely to continue. A spokesperson for the RWDSU said that the union received over a thousand inquiries about organizing from Amazon workers at other facilities since the organizing uh, effort began. So we may see uh, more of that from uh, Amazon facilities around the country. I certainly hope we do. Uh, And from other non-Amazon facilities around the country as well. So there there is that today. Listen, nobody ever said that overcoming at least 40 years of propaganda against uh, unions was going to be easy. Especially against one of the wealthiest companies in the world with the ability to skirt labor laws, to propagandize its own workers anti-union signs in bathroom stalls. Yes, really, I've seen them. Uh, In other non-Alabama news today on stuff that is also clearly going to take a while, President Joe Biden followed up on the promise he made during the 2020 campaign uh, to announce on Friday the creation of a bipartisan presidential commission to analyze the Arguments, quote, for and against Supreme Court reform, including an appraisal of the merits and legality of particular reform proposals. 
The topics it it will examine include the genesis of the reform debate, the court's role in the constitutional system, the length of service and turnover of justices on the court who currently serve lifetime appointments, the membership and the size of the court and the court's case selection rules and practices. Biden promised this uh, bipartisan commission last fall as progressive uh, court reform advocates were calling for expansion of the court that after the GOP stole a majority on the court by refusing to even meet with uh, then President Barack Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court that was would be then Chief Justice of the U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C., now Attorney General Merrick Garland. They wouldn't even meet with him, much less hold a vote on his nomination for an entire year after the death of far-right judicial activist Justice Antonin Scalia, claiming that his death in February of 2016 was just too close to that year's presidential election to consider filling a seat on the high court. Of course, last year in 2020, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died just a month and a half before the presidential election itself. And Republicans, after having killed the filibuster for Supreme Court justices, two justices earlier, rammed through uh, Donald Trump's nomination of Amy Coney Barrett in less than a month's time on a party line vote securing a 6-3 majority on the high court. So for now, in any event, a presidential commission will have to do uh, that until uh, Democrats can figure out how to do away with the filibuster or somehow reform it. Uh, But that seems highly unlikely right now in the U.S. Senate, especially with the most powerful man in the nation, Democratic Senator Joe, uh, Joe Manchin, refusing to uh, even reform the legislative filibuster that would allow Democrats to expand the GOP's packed and stolen Supreme Court. So the commission will have to do. They'll also be looking at um, the, uh, the federal judiciary itself, including the idea of expanding uh, uh, certain appellate courts and implementing new ethics rules for judges. Biden, uh, his executive order formally launches this commission. They will uh, uh, meet and then with, uh, within six months they will produce a report to ensure that the commission's report is comprehensive and informed by a diverse spectrum of views. It will hold public meetings to hear the views of other experts and groups and interested individuals with varied perspectives on the issues it will be examining, according to the White House. Well, that is nice. But in the meantime, the federal courts themselves now packed with Republican appointees all the way from the lower courts on up to SCOTUS are now serving as the Republican Party's de facto legislative branch with activist judges stepping in to do the bidding of the party that appears, at least in Congress, to have no governing agenda at all. But. That's just not true. Our guest today, an expert on the Supreme Court, will explain. Author and constitutional law expert Ian Milheiser joins us next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. (laughs) 
What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I have spent no small amount of time on this program in recent weeks and months and arguably years reporting and, yes, occasionally ranting, what me rant, on the fact that the Republican Party, at least at the federal level in Congress, actually has no real governing values or any actual legislative agenda or principles anymore, that the GOP is now simply an organization meant to keep its elected officials in power for the power that it grants them and the money that they are able to raise to personally benefit themselves and their friends, not their voters, and then to remain in power so that they can keep that cycle going as long as possible. They don't actually have any values that they actually care about. At least that's what I've argued. Just by way of an example or two that we've discussed on this program recently, Republicans used to pretend that they favored small local governments as, you know, those on the ground who knew best what their own communities needed or wanted. And yet... As we've been reporting recently, Republicans at the state government level all across the country are adopting laws which would ban cities and towns from doing things like banning the use of fossil fuels in favor of renewables, no matter how much the people in those cities and towns and communities actually want that and are actually passing laws to try and do exactly that, only to be bigfooted by the state government saying, no, you can't do that. Of course, in doing so, they are doing the bidding of the fossil fuel industry, which has long shoveled millions of dollars to Republican candidates who, in turn, have protected the fossil fuel industry interests and their tax breaks even long after it has become clear that the industry's products are endangering civilization itself on this planet through the uncontrolled release of dangerous climate warming greenhouse gases. Doing the bidding of corporations is, of course, nothing new for the party. And yet, at the same time, now that major corporations all over the country are speaking out against the GOP's assault on voting rights and a number of those corporations are finally speaking out, Republicans are turning on those companies, telling them that they should stay out of politics. Here, for example, incredibly enough, was Republican Senator uh, Minority Le- Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell just this past week. My warning, if you will, to corporate America is to stay out of politics. It's not what you're designed for. You get my drift. If I were running a major corporation, I'd stay out of politics. Uh, Huh? Wait, what? Yeah, that's Mitch McConnell actually saying corporations should stay out of politics this week. That, of course, is absurd, given that McConnell himself personally has not only done more to ensure corporations are able to shovel money into politics under the notion that money is somehow an expression of free speech, 
but his own allied political action committee last year raised more money than any other, most of it from corporate CEOs and corporations themselves. In fact, the Supreme Court has uh, that that undermined the bipartisan McCain-Feingold campaign finance law some years ago that had tried to restrict money in politics was in fact called McConnell versus the Federal Elections Commission. That was Mitch McConnell's challenge, trying to keep corporations in politics. So now Republicans are even pretending to turn on corporations and what they had long described as their right to free expression. Now that corporations are actually expressing themselves with actual words instead of simply dark money dollars shoveled quietly to the GOP. That's just a couple of examples of how the GOP doesn't really stand to stand for anything anymore. It's now unclear if there is anything that Republicans actually believe in, much less what their legislative agenda might actually be beyond preventing voters from being able to participate in their own representative democracy, which Republicans fear may result in them losing their elected positions, where, of course, they appear to have no legislative agenda anyway. Longtime constitutional law expert Ian Milheiser spoke to a similar theme recently in a New York Times op-ed last week, noting not so long ago, Republicans had one of the most ambitious legislative agendas of any political party in modern American history. Devised by the former House Speaker Paul Ryan, the so-called Ryan budget sought to reduce much of the nation's social safety net to ashes. Congressional Republicans plan to slash Medicaid spending and food stamps. In the most aggressive version of Ryan's proposal, Republicans would have replaced Medicare with premium support vouchers that could be used to buy private insurance and then reduced the value of the subsidy every year, effectively eliminating traditional Medicare over time. So, you know, like it or not, at least it was an actual governing and legislative agenda. But, as Milheiser notes, all of that has now changed. The Ryan budget is a relic. At their 2020 national convention, Republicans did not even bother to come up with a new platform. Yet, while the party appears to have no legislative agenda, he argues, it's a mistake to conclude that it has no policy agenda because, he says, Republicans do. They have an extraordinarily ambitious agenda to roll back voting rights, to strip the government of much of its power to regulate, to give broad legal immunity to religious conservatives and to immunize many businesses from a, from a wide range of laws. It's just that the Republican Party doesn't plan to pass its agenda through either one of the elected branches. So how do they plan to accomplish that agenda? What is their game? Milheiser said its agenda lives in the judiciary and especially in the Supreme Court. Here to expose that game, as he also does in his latest book, I believe, is our old friend Ian Milheiser, constitutional law expert, senior correspondent at Vox.com, where he focuses on the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and the decline of liberal democracy in the U.S. He is also now the author of two books on the U.S. Supreme Court. His latest, just published, I believe, is The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America. 
Oh, Mr. Milheiser, welcome back to the broadcast, Counselor. It's good to be here. Thanks so much. So the GOP, you say, does have an agenda, but as you argue at the Times, its agenda now lives in the judiciary and especially in the Supreme Court. Really? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, well, let's look at the last decade. Mm-hmm. You know, it basically are at the, you know, at the end of a lost decade in Congress, mm-hmm. um, you know, from 2011 when Republicans took over the House until 2020 when the pandemic happened mm-hmm. and doing nothing really wasn't an option. Congress did a lot of nothing. You know, you, you, you know they... Um, they passed the Trump tax bill, but there was very little major legislation enacted. The Ryan budget went nowhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I said in my Times piece, you know, they, they sort of abandoned all of that toward mm-hmm. the end of the Trump presidency. And in the same period, um, you know, just a short list of things that the Supreme Court has done, mm-hmm. um, they severely weakened the Voting Rights Act. They basically dismantled uh, much of our campaign finance law. They permitted states to opt out of the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. The Supreme Court um, created this new religious liberty doctrine that allows the rights of, that allows people with religious objections to the law to diminish the rights of other people. They weakened sexual and racial harassment laws. They expanded um, something called forced arbitration. I've got a whole chapter about this in my book, mm-hmm. which allows your boss or really any company you deal with to force you to sign away your right to sue them. Um, they undercut public sector unions. Mm-hmm. They effectively eliminated the president's recess appointments power. They um, halted Obama's clean power plan. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in case you think it's all bad news, there's also the marriage equality decision. <laughs> right. So the Supreme Court is now the locus of policymaking in the United States. Yeah. You know, during... You know, during a period where Congress was basically doing nothing, yeah. the court was really, really busy. Yeah, I, you know, when I looked at that list in your Times piece from what the court did, and, and that's just a, a, a summary, a small list, if you will, from 2011 to 2020, you know, I thought, well, boy, howdy, you are right. If that exact same list had been a description of a, of a, of, of a Republican Congress, bills that they had passed to do those exact same things, we would say they were one of the most effective Congresses in history. I mean, it's a it's a huge agenda that got passed essentially by the Supreme Court, just not by Republicans in Congress. Is all of this by design by Republicans or, or just default because they've run out of ways to get anything done in Congress? Um, I mean, I don't know if there's any grand plan where, like, 40 years ago, a bunch of Republicans got together in a smoke-filled room and Mm -hmm. decided, you know, but, you know, one thing that the GOP is very good at is seizing opportunities when it's presented to them, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, and if the opportunity is to block Obama's agenda through a filibuster, they they seize it, you Mm -hmm. know, and and if the, the opportunity is to, you know, ram a tax bill through, they seize that. And in this case, they control the Supreme Court. They now have a supermajority on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And specifically, you know, this I, I talk a great deal in the book about this, how, like, what this court is very sophisticated, in, you know, in its thinking, is how it can aggrandize power within itself at the expense of the other branches. Mm-hmm. You know, so I have an entire chapter about how the Supreme Court is trying, is poised to give itself a veto power over 
the EPA's actions to make sure that our air and our water is clean, mm-hmm. or over the Department of um, Health and Human Services actions to say that insurers have to cover things like birth control or cancer screenings um, or, you know, wellness care for infants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Supreme Court wants to be able to veto all of that. Um, you know, they want to be able to veto the Department of Labor's overtime regulation. Basically, anything that the Biden administration tries to do, exercising its own power, where it doesn't have to go to Congress because there's an existing law that it can rely on. The Supreme Court wants to give itself a veto power over that. And and the reason why is, is fairly straightforward. If you're Neil Gorsuch, who would you rather have making those decisions, Neil Gorsuch or Joe Biden? Right. Well, to be clear, when you say the Supreme Court wants to give itself that power, we should we should know that's Republicans, Republican appointees on the Supreme Court who are doing that. And uh, Republicans in Congress seem to be very happy about it because, you know, as they abandon an actual legislative agenda, it seems, as you argue, and as seems pretty obvious at this point, it seems like they're relying on the Supreme Court to essentially enact their interests instead, though. Ian Milheiser, isn't that the very definition of an activist judiciary legislating from the bench that Republicans have long pretended to oppose? Well, I, you know, I think that parties that are confident in their political fortunes mm-hmm. tend to, you know, be skeptical of judicial power. So, mm-hmm. like, if you look at Franklin Roosevelt, you know, when Roosevelt was in power, the Supreme Court kept striking down New Deal policies and. He got to appoint a bunch of justices, and what he could have done is he could have appointed a bunch of justices that were based, who would basically implement the New Deal from the bench. Mm-hmm. And he didn't do that. You know, he appointed justices who would get out of the way, who would uphold his policies, but let the Democratic branches govern. And the reason why, I think, is pretty straightforward. I mean, Roosevelt won four landslide elections. You know, he was confident in his ability to get his policies through the democratic process, so he didn't need an unelected body of nine judges to do it for him. Mm -hmm. And if you look at President Nixon's rhetoric about the courts, or President Reagan's rhetoric about the courts, you know, Ronald Reagan talked about a lot about judicial restraint. You know, Richard Nixon talked about how wrong it is for judges to substitute their own values for the will of the people. And, you know, the reason they talk that way is, you know, whatever you think about Nixon and Reagan, they had the people on their side. Mm-hmm. You know, they won their election fair and square. Mm-hmm. Reagan won two landslide races, mm-hmm. and so he was confident. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't need the judiciary to, to implement his agenda because he thought he had the people on his side. Mm-hmm. Now, Democrats have won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I saw a study recently which said that if it wasn't for malapportionment, mm-hmm. um, Democrats would have controlled the Senate, I think, every year since, like, the late 90s. Mm-hmm. So, like, Republicans are not confident that they have the will of the people behind them because they don't have the will of the people behind them. Yeah. And there's only two things that you can do when you're a minority party like that. Either you can moderate, or you can try to tear down democracy. And, you know, they they seem to have gone through for option B Mm -hmm. with the Supreme Court as the vehicle that they're going to use to enact policies and to dismantle voting rights to make sure that, you know, it doesn't matter what the voters think. 
you, you also argue that many of the changes uh, to come from the uh, uh, GOP's stolen, as I see it, six to three Republican majority uh, actually build on actions that were made by the earlier pre-Trump, pre-stolen uh, five to four uh, Republican court. Is it fair to say that though the numbers have changed now with this uh, hard right push, you know, six to three and a, and a hard right push underway. Uh, but this has actually been going on for decades by the court that this is, in fact, nothing new. It is not in and of itself due to the three justices that uh, Trump packed onto the court. Yeah, I mean, the, the court has been moving further and further to the right since the Nixon administration. I mean, I mean you know, like if you go back to Nixon, Every justice who's been appointed since Nixon, mm-hmm. with the possible exception of Ginsburg and Sotomayor, has been more conservative than the person that they replaced. And, of course, Ginsburg was recently replaced by her opposite. Mm-hmm. And so the courts have just been marching for the last 50 years to the right. And what that means is that you get a lot of really bad decisions on the way. Now, I think it, it is worse now than it has been since the 1930s, when mm-hmm. you had a Supreme Court that was striking down the New Deal, I honestly don't know if we have ever had a Supreme Court in American history, including in the Jim Crow era, that was more hostile to voting rights. Mm. I mean, the difference between the court we have now and Jim Crow era Supreme Court is that we actually have a Voting Rights Act now. Mm-hmm. Like, we actually have federal laws that were put in place to protect us against Jim Crow-style voter suppression. And this Supreme Court has been dismantling the Voting Rights Act for the last decade. So the sin of the Jim Crow Court was often that they just let the South get away with whatever it wanted. You know, the the Mm -hmm. sin of our current court is that it is actively paving the way for things like the law we just saw in passed in Georgia by dismantling the federal laws that are supposed to stop things like that. Right. Now, as you uh, you also note, you've already begun to see, even though the court's been moving right now for decades, but you, you note that you've also begun to see a change in court decisions already, just with the addition of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, she was, of course, rammed onto the court just days before the 2020 presidential election last year. Uh, re- referencing a, uh, you, you reference a difference in the court's rulings related to the COVID crisis since she came on to the bench. Uh, how has the court already changed since this uh, hard-right jurist, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, took the seat that was long held by the late liberal champion, as you say, her opposite, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Yeah, so the, the biggest change we've seen since Barrett's confirmation is that there have been a number of cases. I mean, like, I mean, I think everyone knows what's going on with COVID right now. Like, there's just a lot of state laws that, you know, and state rules that have been in place mm-hmm saying that, you know, you can't go out and, like, breathe on everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, closing bars, closing schools, closing all kinds of institutions, closing churches, Mm -hmm. um, or at least putting capacity limits on them. And, you know, I mean, I don't like the fact that I can't go to my favorite restaurant or, you know, I can't go hang out with my friends either, but, like, these things exist for a very good reason. They exist to protect human life. Mm -hmm. There have been some churches who didn't want to follow these rules and claimed that they should get have exemptions from these restrictions that apply to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Before Barrett's confirmation, the Supreme Court 
handed down, I think, a pair of five to four decisions saying, no, like, churches do not get exemptions from these public health rules. Like, like you know, we're going to defer to mm-hmm. the public health experts here. Right. We don't want people going to church and having a church service become mm-hmm. a super spreader of that. After Barrett's confirmation, those decisions started going five to four in the other direction. Mm. Not, and, not a good sign. Uh, not a good sign for what may, be, uh, what may be coming just a few months from now, I guess, when we get to uh, decision season from the court. Uh, Ian Milheiser, you have long written at Vox and, and before that at Think Progress about the intersection of the court's and democracy itself. What does it say at this point about our democracy that so many of the court's rulings, really now for a long time, seem to be in direct contradiction of the majority will of the people? Are the courts broken, or is the constitutional democracy that created these courts broken? I mean, it's it's a tough question because, I mean, it is indeed the role of the courts sometimes to strike down popularly enacted legislation. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like, that's the point of having constitutional rights, is that sometimes there's something that, the, you know, the populace wants to take away from you, mm-hmm. and the Constitution says it can't. Protecting the but, minority from the tyranny of the majority, as they say. Yeah, you know, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, it might be very, very popular to say that, like, someone with a terrible idea shouldn't be able to say it. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean we don't have the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. That said... What I think this court has done is, is it has become very aggressive in striking down laws based on, you know, often very marginal legal reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that, I mean, th- this was the settlement that was reached after Roosevelt, is that what the Supreme Court said was a case called Caroline Products. It said, first of all, in almost all cases, we want democratically elected officials to decide what our policy is. And, you know, the reason for that should be obvious. The people should rule not a bunch of you know, people in robes. And then there are a few exceptions to that. You know, one exception is that the Constitution is clear, like, you know, if there's a First Amendment, it's clear that there's a protection for free speech, and the court has to enforce that. Mm-hmm. The second is what the court referred to as a tax on discrete and insular minorities. So, like, you know, think of the Jim Crow South. If black people in the Jim Crow South are being systematically excluded from the opportunities and the political um, power that's given to everyone else, of course, have to strike that down. And then the third category is if lawmakers attack democracy itself. Mm-hmm. So, like, this, for example, is why I think that partisan gerrymandering should be, uh, should be struck down, because lawmakers can't choose their own voters. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can't use their power to entrench their own power. They still have to stand in a free and fair election. Except the court has Uh, said, we don't want anything to do with partisan gerrymandering. That's just fine. Leave it up to the states. Exactly. Um, And so, you know, there is a role for the judiciary. But the judiciary, first of all, there there has to be limits. Like, you have to be able to articulate what the court should and should not do. And second of all, the most important role of the court is protecting our is protecting our democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's making sure that um, you know we actually can govern ourselves and we can choose the leaders that that we want. Mm-hmm. And this court has turned that on its head. You know, it, where the old rules were, you know, most laws are going to be upheld if you attack democracy, the courts will come for you. Now they're striking down 
EPA regulations mm-hmm. um, for spurious, you know, they're striking down, you know, parts of Obamacare for spurious, you know, they're, they're pre- preventing the Democratic branches from governing. And at the same time, they're turning around saying, oh, we're also going to strike down much of the Voting Rights Act. We're mm-hmm. going to make it harder for our democracy to work. So the courts we have now, I think, they're really doing the opposite of what they should be doing. You know, yeah. they, they are attacking democracy in two ways by preventing the people who are in office from governing, and then also by harming the process that we use to pick who our leaders are. It's, it's, it's a very disturbing moment. That's what I, you know, when I was reading your piece and, and thinking that something seems like it has gone terribly wrong with, with our democracy itself when the courts seem to be so out of sync from... From what the people want and not, you know, again, yes, protect the, you know, the minority from the tyranny of the majority. But that does not seem to be what's going on. If if there was any governing agenda by the Republicans over the past several years in Congress, it was uh, other than the 2017 tax cut. Pretty much all they did was Mitch McConnell packed the federal courts. And I'm wondering, um, and this is, you know, a problem, you know, above and beyond the Supreme Court. But I'm wondering, how do Democrats respond to that? Are there still enough vacancies on the federal courts that they can begin at least to answer uh, to the way the courts were packed under McConnell, even if that doesn't speak to the ultimate problem at the U.S. Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, good judges on the bench is very important. And I invited in Nathan Stressel. The nominees. It looks like a good list to me, and I hope that he gets to appoint many more. But, I mean, first of all, the Supreme Court sits at the apex of the judiciary. So, like, any good thing that a lower court judge does can be undone by the Supreme Court. And second of all, like, one phenomenon that we've seen is it's called form shopping. You know, mm-hmm. form shopping is like the federal trial court, the country is divided into, I think, 87 different judicial districts. Mm-hmm. And then many of those districts are divided up into what are called divisions. And some of those divisions might only have, like, one or two judges in them. And so one pattern you've seen is that the Texas Attorney General mm-hmm. will file all of their cases, or at least all their cases where they're, like, challenging Democratic policy. Mm-hmm in divisions that only have one or two judges who are super right-wing. And then they will get an order from one of these judges, often on, you know, ridiculous grounds, doing things like, you know, there was a decision recently saying that Biden couldn't put a pause on deportation. Mm -hmm. There was a decision recently saying that, um, you know, striking down the federal eviction moratorium. Um, there's a judge that his name's Reed O'Connor, who is basically just a rubber stamp for Republican policies. He's the guy who says the entire Affordable Care Act needs to be thrown out. Right, like, right, right. You, you know, and so like the problem is that you can put on a lot of good judges, and I mean Biden needs to put on a lot of good judges, but a lot of Republican litigants have gotten very, very good mm-hmm. at hunting for, like, the one judge in the country who will sign on <laughs> to something crazy. Right. And then once you get a judge to say it, you know, it gets treated as if it's a mainstream argument. Right. And there's a risk that the Supreme Court up, the Supreme Court winds up affirming that judge's decision. And even if, uh, you know, Biden does uh, appoint a bunch of good judges, and, and whether the Republicans, you mentioned the Texas Attorney General, who, by the way, is is uh, has already been indicted on securities fraud 
even while he's serving as Texas AG. That won't correct, of course, the the, the Republicans' packed Supreme Court, at least for now. Uh, And I see no actual path at this point, Ian, to expanding the court in order to restore balance to the court, at least not as long as Joe Manchin is refusing to end the filibuster, which would otherwise give the Democrats the ability to do just that, to expand the court. So is the Supreme Court an uncorrectable problem at this point that we will all simply have to learn to live with for the next generation or two? Um, I mean, I don't know that it can be corrected quickly. Uh Um, I mean, I do think, well, you know, I will say this, which is that Thomas and Alito are both in their 70s, you know, Judges die, judges leave the court for other reasons. And the important thing is that when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court, that vacancy is filled by a president who doesn't want people like Thomas and Alito on the Supreme Court. <laughs> right. And so the, the most important thing that anyone can do is, like, you got to go out and make sure that you have a president who's, who's going to appoint the right judges and you have a Senate that's going to confirm those judges. And the Supreme Court's they can't harder to vote. I mean, they're probably going to uphold this terrible Georgia law. Mm. But if you look at what the terrible Georgia law does, it may make it so that voters in Atlanta have to wait six hours in line and no one can bring them a bottle of water. Mm-hmm. But if they're willing to go to endure that ordeal, they still get to vote. And, like, people are going to have to make sacrifices. and They're going to have to struggle yep. to make sure that we still have our democracy. Yep. And it's not right and it's not fair, but it is so important yeah. because what the the San Zolito of the world wants you to do is give up. Yeah. And the folks in Georgia do seem to understand that. We owe them a great debt of gratitude for, uh, you know, giving the Democrats a, a majority there in the first place, which means if something does happen on the Supreme Court, now, I guess, thanks to Mitch McConnell doing away with the filibuster for Supreme Court justices and making it clear that you can pack uh, a justice onto the court in, what, about a month's time, I guess uh, Democrats can work very quickly if something like that happens. Until it does, we all have to buckle up and and keep voting, essentially, no matter how difficult uh, some folks may make it. Ian Milheiser, his new book discussing many of these uh, very ideas, I suspect, is called The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America. He is, of course, senior correspondent at Vox.com, where he writes on the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and much more. You can also find him on the Twitters at iMilheiser. Ian, always great speaking with you, my friend. Look forward to doing it again in the near future. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. Okay. Well, you know what I could use after <laughs> uh, a week like the last one we've had, Desi Doyen? Yeah. A little bit of Randy Rainbow. Okie dokie. That always makes everything better. <laughs> That's next, right ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But, of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like. 
or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate right now. Go ahead, do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Okay, I've sort of referenced this all week, uh, pretty much just so that I could play a clip from the audio version of his book that I'll maybe play in a second again. But John Boehner's new memoir, uh, according to the Washington Post today, remember him, former Republican House Speaker? Well, he derides today's Republican Party as unrecognizable to what he describes as traditional conservatives like himself, charging that the party is held hostage by both former President Donald Trump and by a right-wing media echo chamber that is based on creating chaos for its own financial needs. He's not wrong. Correct. He's not wrong, Uh, though I would add that his party was already held willingly hostage to that same right-wing echo chamber, even when he still served as House Speaker. Nonetheless, I, I, uh, he says, uh, I don't even think I could get elected in today's Republican Party, uh, noting that I don't think Ronald Reagan could either, he says. Described, uh, the book is described as a rollicking, foul-mouthed recounting of Boehner's 25 years on Capitol Hill. The book was originally finished well before the January 6th attack, on the Capitol, but Boehner apparently rewrote portions of the book to forcefully blame Trump for what he calls, quote, a low point for our country, charging that the former president uh, incited the bloody insurrection for nothing more than selfish reasons perpetuated by the BS he'd been shoveling since he lost a fair election, claiming voter fraud without any evidence. Boehner also admits that the House should not have impeached Bill Clinton in 1998. Well, that was nice of him. Because House Republicans, he said, uh, their motives were purely political, though he supported the move at the time. In retrospect, he does not think Clinton's behavior rose to impeachment charges. Oh, you think? There's uh, some bit of praise for almost everyone, the Washington Post reports, mixed in with digs about their politics. Everyone they note except Senator Ted Cruz. Boehner has nothing but contempt for Cruz, dating back to a 2013 federal government shutdown where the Texan played the starring role. And as we have been noting all week, during wine-soaked recording sessions for the audio version of the book, Boehner kept going off script to remind listeners of that contempt. Freedom means you're free to reach as high as you want, no matter where you came from, even if you're a little kid sweeping a bar out in southwest Ohio. Take it from me. You'll never know where you'll end up. That's freedom. I'll raise a glass to that any day. P.S. Ted Cruz, go f*** yourself. So, <laughs> yes, hating on uh, the likes of Ted Cruz and, and Trump buddy Lindsey Graham, by the way, has in recent months become a bit of a national pastime as the great Randy Rainbow reminds us in his latest parody song, this one, a take on Oklahoma's Everything's Up to Date in Kansas City. I'm down on the Texas border along with 18 senators. 
We made the trip to see the crisis that is playing out. It's a humanitarian tragedy that is literally insane policy. They toured the Rio Grande, the Democrats say. A photo ops with Susan, Chuck, and John. Cause up to now they didn't give a rat's say. This is madness. About any border crises going on. They ought to be embarrassed by their hypocrisy. Stringing their constituents along. It's time to take back the border. But ain't it only like the corrupted GOP? Pretending like they don't know right from wrong. Yeah, right. I know. They suck. That's why everyone loves to hate on Ted and Lindsay. Their problem in popularity. You'd think they'd be ashamed of the shenanigans they try, but never can Cruiser Lady G. They really only care about Ted and Lindsay, but that don't mean they can't put on a show. When Texans are in peril and in need of his support, old Teddy's right there on the ground and holding down the forts. Well, unless he's relaxing down by the pool at a five-star resort, he's gone about as low as he can go. Not yet. He's gone about as low as he can go. Everyone loves to hate on Ted and Lindsay. From Washington, D.C. to Santa Rosa. They barely gave a crap when their democracy was hacked. But now they're dressed in costumes and they're trying to distract. So the only thing the country can agree on is the fact that Ted and Lindsay really gotta go. Ted and everyone always and Quite frankly, it's my favorite thing to do. Oh, it's my favorite. It makes me lose my lunch to see them trifling on TV. Spouting propaganda till they're blue. Everyone loves to hate on Ted and Lindsay. Who cheered on every coup and quid pro quo. One day Lindsay jumps through hoops when Daddy Donald calls. The next he's clutching pearls when his supporters climb the walls. Then he's back in the game playing golf with his buddy and begging to hold his balls. They've gone about as low as they can go. Ugh, gross. They've gone about as low as they can go. Gone about as low as they can go. to take back the border Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much randy rainbow yes uh for making the week a little bit better we got to jump out my thanks to our producer desi doyan to my guest today ian milheiser of vox.com and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us it's always appreciated if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. By the way, I'll post a link to Randy Rainbow's video of that song, Even Funnier. Yes. <laughs> and uh, all of this made possible by those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves as long as we can. Thank you. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am simply the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. They've gone about as slow as they can. Gone about